It's Tuesday, September 28th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Police officers are continuing to resist vaccinations, even as we see more mandates for public employees, and as it becomes the number one killer for officers with gunfire coming in second. Cops are lagging behind the general public they serve, and for many of the same reasons we hear in other sectors, not wanting to be forced and skepticism over safety. Police unions are calling for more exemptions or weekly testing. Zusha Ellenson, national reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. Next, R&B singer R. Kelly has been found guilty on all counts in his sex trafficking and racketeering trial. The prosecution called on 45 witnesses to make their case that he was a sexual predator that abused young women and underage girls for more than two decades. The defense tried to say that his victims were just groupies who tried to exploit him. Sentencing will come on May 4th. Lou Shapiro, criminal defense attorney and legal analyst, joins us for what to know. Finally, the pandemic has amplified the social anxiety that some young people are experiencing, and it was intensified by the isolation many underwent. They aren't necessarily scared about catching COVID, but just have the intense fear of being watched and judged. Eduardo Medina, reporter at the New York Times, joins us for post-pandemic social anxiety. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Because a lot of these police officers are now facing a deadline to get their shot by. You know, it's coming up in the end of September, October, early November in a lot of these cities. And there is the threat that they might get terminated if they don't get their shot. Joining us now is Zusha Ellenson, national reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Zusha. Thanks so much for having me. I want to talk about an interesting thing that I've been very curious about recently because we've been seeing a lot of vaccine mandates come into place. Not everywhere, obviously, in a lot of places, they're just uh, strongly recommending that people get vaccinations. But when it comes to police officers and even firefighters to another degree, but police officers are among some of the top people that are resisting getting the vaccine right now. And in a lot of places, the general public is being vaccinated in higher rates than they are. And uh, there's also a, a, an interesting stat in your latest piece, too. Uh, it's actually the number one killer for police officers right now. You know, death by gun is is a, a, in second place on that. So, Zusha, tell us what's going on. Why are officers resisting the vaccine so much? As of last week, 420 law enforcement officers had died from COVID since the beginning of 2020, compared to 92 from gunfire. And, and that's just for police chiefs around the country. They're really worried about this. They want the rank and file to get vaccinated because they interact with the public a lot. A lot of them are dying. But what's happening on the ground is a different story. I mean, you see about half of 50 percent, some cases less than 50 percent of police departments are vaccinated. And that's compared to, you know, 70, 80 percent of the cities where they serve. And what you're seeing is resistance on a couple levels. You see cops who say they're skeptical of the side effects of vaccines, even though they've been approved by the FDA. You also see some cops who um, say they have religious um, objections to the vaccine. And what they've done in some places, you know, they've filed lawsuits. There's a big lawsuit in Los Angeles where they're contesting the vaccine mandate. There's a big lawsuit going on in Washington state where state troopers and firefighters and other are contesting the mandate. And, and what's going to happen, there's going to be a lot of action coming up because a lot of these police officers are now facing a deadline to get their shot by. You know, it's coming up in the end of September, October, early November in a lot of these cities. 
And there is the threat that they might get terminated if they don't get their shots. So there's a lot of negotiating behind the scenes to see if that's going to happen. But there's union officials who are warning that there's going to be a lot of officers who are going to be out of a job if yeah. they don't get their shot. Are we going to see a max a mass exodus of police officers once this deadline hits and a lot of them don't want to get the shot? I would predict that there's not going to be a big exodus, but I do think you're going to see some folks like this sergeant, retired sergeant who works as a reserve officer in San Jose, who we interviewed, and he said, you know, he quit. He could have stayed on, continue getting paid, but he quit rather than get the vaccine. And he said he was skeptical um, sort of of, the, of what, what's been said about the vaccine, even, even though, as I said, it's been approved by the FDA. He claimed there were other officers who had the same feelings as him but didn't want to speak out. He also said he quit so he could speak out. We had, I think we saw a sheriff's deputy who quit in um, Denver, in the Denver area as well. So it will be interesting to see what happens when those deadlines happen. What are we seeing in what you know police unions are asking for? Because a lot of them are asking for, okay, maybe they don't get the vaccine, but at least let us do weekly testing. So what are we seeing in these um, in these lawsuits and then uh, on the religious exemption part of it too? Because if they've gotten other vaccines for other things, wouldn't that say something about this one? Like, well, you didn't refuse that one. Why are you refusing this one? So to start off with the religious exemptions, you have over 3,000 Los Angeles police employees who say they intend to file for a religious or medical exemption. And that's a lot. That's out of 12,000 employees. So they're definitely trying to take advantage of that. And on that front, there's a um, conservative legal group that has backed their lawsuit in Los Angeles to sort of fight for the broadest religious exemptions they can get so that as many people can not get the vaccine. So that's what's happening on the legal front. And then in terms of um, what the unions are doing, they're a little less strident than, say, like a conservative legal group. But what they're negotiating for is the option to have their officers tested rather than get the vaccine and to have some sort of religious exemptions. But I would say um, a couple of the unions around the country have been somewhat strident in their calls and saying they don't want the mandate and nothing to do with it. But I would say others are encouraging their officers to get vaccinated and trying to work with cities. So it's kind of a mixed bag on the union front. In these major cities like New York, Chicago, Seattle, Los Angeles, San Jose, where they have these mandates in place, is there still that wiggle room to say, okay, you know, don't get it, but we'll uh, have to do the weekly testing or the mandates have kind of been set in place. That's what they got to settle for now. Yeah, in a few places they have it, but in most places they're still negotiating that. So we're going to find out in in literally the next few weeks what's going to happen, whether they'll be allowed to be tested. I mean, one one point we need to make here, too, is we um, didn't make the story, but we interviewed members of the public, too. For instance, uh, the head of the NAACP down in San Diego was the one who found out about this Facebook post of a San Diego officer who was complaining about he didn't want the vaccine and how he was going to stand up and rally and would never take a vaccine and rather lose his job. So she found that post and she forwarded it to the police department. They're investigating and what she said, she said, you know, I have the right to know, if, you know, I'm being policed here in the city. I have the right to know if someone is vaccinated, wearing a mask. You know, there's a sense from the, some of the general public that they want officers to be vaccinated for their safety. Zusha Ellenson, national reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. These were not May-October relationships, which is what his defense attorney wanted the jury to believe. 
These were crimes against children and some adults. Joining us now is Lou Shapiro, criminal defense attorney and legal analyst. Thanks for joining us, Lou. Sure. Good to be here again. Well, uh, Lou, brought you on to talk about R. Kelly. He was found guilty on all nine counts that he was facing. This is uh, sex trafficking and racketeering. This was in the Eastern District of New York. You know, we've been hearing a lot about the stuff that R. Kelly was going on through for a long time now. There was a Lifetime documentary. So all of this stuff has been out there. But what did the prosecution do that won them this case? They brought in about 45 witnesses, I think it was, to help prove all of uh, what they were uh, accusing R. Kelly of. When the feds want to get somebody, they spare no expense and effort and resources in doing so. And this was a good example of that. They got witnesses nationally from all over the world to come in and talk about their personal experiences with R. Kelly, whether it was being sort of shipped in from another state through the enterprise that he was running or just being charmed by him. It was key for the prosecution to bring in all these witnesses because the defense was arguing that they were being opportunistic, that these witnesses were just trying to get their 15 minutes of fame. But you can maybe argue that with one or two. But when you have so many that they brought in, that defense failed, and that's why he was convicted. Yeah, and, you know, as you mentioned, they had so much testimony, uh, a bunch of really gross things, you know, dictating what they could eat, when they could eat, when they could use the bathroom. They had a lot of video evidence, too, that the prosecution turned to. As I mentioned, some of the stuff that wasn't released to the public, but supposedly a video that they had showing Kelly grabbing a victim by the hair and forcing her to perform oral sex on another man. You know, they had so much in their corner with all this stuff. It was quite disturbing. And a lot of people were scratching their heads thinking, well, how how did he get away with this for so many years? How come this wasn't prosecuted way back when? And You know, the Me Too movement is very responsible, I think, for shining a spotlight on these types of cases and saying no longer are celebrities or people in the public eye that people look up to. They're not going to get a pass anymore. And uh, he definitely did not get a pass. He's looking at many, many years as a result of this. Okay, so what did the defense do? As you mentioned, uh, they were trying to portray his victims as opportunistic groupies. Let's say the defense only called five witnesses. I mean, what what were they trying to? prove? How, how, how were they going to do it with so much evidence against them, let's say? Yeah, the defense knew going into this case that it was going to be an uphill battle. So all they were hoping to do realistically was get one or two jurors to not vote guilty and hope for a hung jury. That was best case here. Using the Lifetime documentary to be able to argue to the jury, look, this is why we're hearing this kind of testimony. These people like being on television, like being you know, they, they could have book deals coming. That's all the, the defense really had to go. Part of this was racketeering, running a criminal enterprise. Well, how did that figure into this? What is that about? Right. So this is a very novel approach by the feds because typically racketeering, RICO charges are used uh, most commonly in gang cases, mafia cases, where you're showing that the crime that was perpetrated on the victim or victims was run by a bunch of people, and it was run for a greater purpose rather than just for the sake of that actual crime itself. But it was to benefit an enterprise, a criminal enterprise. So in this case, uh, the prosecution took that same platform and plugged it into R. Kelly's team and said, well, R. Kelly, he's got people under him which are taking somehow getting minors to come from other states to perform sexual acts with him. This really does fit into like a criminal enterprise scheme. So it's not just for like that one prostitution, but it's more like for a 
a, a constant sort of business, so to speak, to R. Kelly. This is what he was running. And it brings a lot more time in the case, too, in terms of what he's looking at in sentencing now. This was happening in New York, but is he, he's still facing charges in other places, right? Right. He's facing charges in other places. And off the RICO charge that you just said, he's looking at a minimum of 20 years based on that alone. And then when you add to it the two man act charges, which involved, which are separate counts, when you bring minors from out of, out of the country to perform sexual acts, those two counts carry also 10 years each. So he's looking at, at 40 years right now, wow. uh, just on the federal case alone. That's before we get yeah. to the state case that you just spoke about. The last thing I wanted to ask is that, you know, R. Kelly did not testify on his behalf throughout this. How might have that played a role in it? I think his defense team knew that once R. Kelly would get on the stand, he probably would be confronted with questions that he wouldn't have good answers to. Quite often, it, we, when we put a defendant on the stand, we're worried that the defendant's going to say or do something that's going to wreck the whole case. And that, that's very well could happen because he's sort of the star of the show, so to speak. So it was, it was a safe play. It was probably the right play. And I don't think, as a legal analyst and criminal defense attorney, that it, that it would have made it any better for him had he taken the stand. Lou Shapiro, criminal defense attorney and legal analyst, thank you very much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Be well. What happens is it can lead to wanting to just stay inside all day, not socializing, which can spiral down into depression, is what experts say. Joining us now is Eduardo Medina, reporter at the New York Times. Thanks for joining us, Eduardo. Thanks for having me. I wanted to talk about social anxiety in young people. It's something that a lot of experts say has been worsened by the pandemic. You know, just kind of these intense feelings of anxiety, not wanting to be out in public and around too many people. The interesting thing about this is, is that it's not necessarily for a lot of these young people, it's not necessarily anxiousness about catching COVID. It's just that kind of classical sense of the term, I guess, social anxiety, of just being out and about with a lot of different people. But, um, you know, a lot of young people coming into adulthood and kind of going through all these lockdowns and everything, these, this isolation made it a lot worse for them. So, uh, Eduardo, uh, tell us a little bit about what we're seeing. Essentially, there are two groups of, of young people here in this story. There's those who already had social anxiety before the pandemic. And for them, they, throughout the, you know, the whole year, were indoors. And at the beginning, it was, it was nice. It was, it was a break from socializing. It was, you know, that's their fear. And so they didn't have to do that anymore. But what happened is that, so, that weekend, their socializing muscles and so now that we're gradually reemerging and, you know, socializing again, they are having much more time being out with friends, responding to texts. It's really deeply affecting them. And those who didn't have social anxiety for the pandemic developed it or developed symptoms of that disorder throughout the pandemic and are now themselves, you know, when they go to stores, their hands get sweaty and, and, and they stutter and order coffee. And, you know, these don't sound like the most terrible symptoms, I suppose. But what happens is it can lead to wanting to just stay inside all day, not socializing, which can spiral down into depression is what experts say. Yeah, definitely. So going through lockdowns was very tough, obviously, on a lot of people. And coming out of that, you know, a lot of us were rusty, right? Rusty in, you know, our personal interactions, uh, you know, handshakes was a big thing that's kind of almost gone now for a lot of people, <laughs> you know, all these right. type of things. But 
for some of these people, right, it, it, as you mentioned, some of these uh, symptoms might not be so bad, but it can lead to panic attacks, some more um, aggressive types of this anxiety. If I can just talk about one, this one young man, his name is Jared Winton from Tallahassee, Florida. He's 22. And his social anxiety got so bad that in May this year, this man was having four, averaging, I should say, four panic attacks a week. So he would get in his bed, he would curl up in a ball, and he would feel himself panting and sweating, and his vision would blacken, and he would have panic attacks. And that's how bad it's gotten for some people. And that's just one example. And not all of them have panic attacks. And this is not every single young person with social anxiety who's feeling this. Right. But it's a significant portion, and it's enough that you know, it's, it's severely affecting their lives. When we talk about young people, you did make a, a note of it in your article, so I appreciate that. You're talking about young people. So typically, they define that as very young, 13 to 25. So there's at least we have a good age range to think about when we're talking about young people. And, um, you know, some of these experts are saying, well, this is kind of their formative years. You know, they're still trying to figure out how to act in a lot of social interactions. And, you know, all of this is just kind of making it worse for the long-term effects. What's particularly troubling about young people is they haven't had the experience that older adults have in terms of, you know, practicing socializing. And so what's happening is because they don't have that experience, they're much more entrenched in their reclusive habits. And also, you know, their frontal lobes have not been fully developed. That's what a couple of scientists told me. And so that's also just going to mean that those who are between 13 and 25 are just going to, as is, struggle more with that. And so, it, you know, it, it's, it's, it's particularly troubling among that age group, like you say. A lot of the people that you spoke to, not necessarily the anxiety of catching COVID. This is the, that just kind of fearful that people are looking at them. People um, are, you know, are maybe mocking them. It, you know, it's kind of this other uh, side of it. It's a fear of being judged, essentially, is what social anxiety is. And so school is just a prime hub for feeling that way for right. many young people. And so it manifests in many ways. Some students, experts say, you know, they don't respond back to professors' emails. They don't engage in the classroom. And so we see social anxiety, the effects of that spawning in all kinds of different ways. In this way, it's an academic sense, but um, that's exactly right. You know, it's, it, that's, it's just... It spilled over into the classroom, and you know, one particular university saw a 20% increase in Alabama of socially anxious students, and that's enormous. And that's not entirely across the country, but it's safe to say that that's being replicated across the, across you know many different states. So, so what do some of the experts say as far as you know trying to get over this? I know some exposure therapy. You know, part of it is you just kind of have to get out there and start interacting in the real world again. That's it. It's it's, it's exposure therapy, and so. That is very tough for a lot of people who have social anxiety to do. It's directly engaging with that fear of, of being out. But the way, you know, it, it's in steps. So what one person told me, Lauren Rudick, she's 27. She has started going out to restaurants by herself and just sitting at a table by herself, reading a book and, order, and eating food. And that sounds like the most mundane thing to many of us. But that requires so much courage and effort for people who have social anxiety. And, you know, that's just one of many ways that you can partake in exposure therapy. But that, that's really the only way that experts have found to alleviate some of those symptoms. Eduardo Medina, reporter at the New York Times, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.